Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Peninsula Church of Christ, located at 502 Woodland Road in Hampton, Virginia. We are so glad that you have chosen this time to study the Word of God, and it is our prayer that this sermon will be a blessing to your soul. You can find more information about the congregation, including our service times and full contact information, online at www.peninsulacofc.org. That is P-E-N-I-N-S-U-L-A-C-O-F-C dot org. If the sermon prompts questions in your mind, please reach out to us. Keep listening after the sermon for more information. And now, a sermon from the Peninsula Church of Christ. If you allow me for a moment to do such, I want to make a statement that, unfortunately, in today's society and times, seems to be somewhat controversial. I am created in the image of our awesome God. And so are you. There was a time where that was just a given, wasn't it? When you would enter a room and have a conversation with someone, and by and large, most folks in that room would accept the fact that we were all created by God. Now, we didn't always live up to that ideal, most certainly, but generally speaking, we as a society and culture accepted that man was created in the image of God. And that God was great and God was awesome, and man ought to seek to live up to that God. Just as simple as that. I look at you and I see one made fashioned by the hand of God in the image of God. You know, every year at my birthday, I request one thing for my wife. Just one. An angel food cake. Homemade. I love it. I will eat the whole thing myself if I were allowed to. The children will not allow me to. But I would if I could. But I don't walk out into the dining room and see an angel food cake sitting there and assume that it just happened to pop into existence. I don't assume that it came out of nowhere. I don't assume that sometime at some point in the kitchen, the egg white somehow or another separated from the yolks and all mixed together and whipped up with some other ingredients that are just wonderful to behold and bang, it happened, right? If I hear a bang in the kitchen, I want to know where the kids are because odds are one of them is in there making a mess. I don't expect there to be a cake coming out of that. I expect there to be cleaning coming out of that scenario. We are created in the image of God. We are designed by God. It is as simple as that. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to examine this idea. I am created. Today, I'm created in the beginning. Looking big picture at the idea of being created in the image of God. All men being created in that image. But next week, we're going to change the last bit of that. Instead of in the beginning, we're going to have a new beginning because we're going to talk about the recreation that we have experienced in Christ and what that means for those of us who are God's children in particular. But let's step away from that specific idea and let's zoom back out and look at the bigger picture of the idea that all men are created in the image of God. And we're going to do that from Acts 17 today, looking at two points in particular. The first being the God who made the world, and the second being he made from one blood. Both statements taken out of the context here of Acts 17. So let's look at this first point as we begin in Acts 17 at verse 22. God who made the world. Now we know the context for this, I imagine, that Paul is here at Athens, and he sees an altar that... It says, to the unknown God. Now, they're worshiping all sorts of gods. They're open to all kinds of discussion and philosophy and theory. 
In fact, they lived to hear and know and, and experience new things. And they thought this was the height of intellectual existence. And so Paul comes in. And remember, Paul isn't just a run-of-the-mill preacher. Paul is, for one, an apostle called out of your season. And two, he was trained at the feet of one of the most influential rabbis in all of Judaism. He was trained in logic and reason and argument. He didn't claim to be a capable speaker, but he did make the claim to being a capable, well, we might call it debater. One who could present a case and present it well. If you read the book of Romans, you know that about the Apostle Paul. The book of Romans is one long argument, isn't it? From beginning to end, with the argument occupying the first 11 chapters and chapters 12 through 16 occupying implications of that argument for those who were members of God's church. So this is Paul, and he's there, and he sees all of these idols, and he sees this one unknown, unknown God. And man, if you're a preacher or if you're anyone who's taught class, you know that's just, man, that, that's just butter right there. You, you just take that, you do something good with it, right? And so he comes and he stands before these men in the Areopagus and he begins to speak to them about this God. He says, I perceive that you're very religious. In all things, you're, you're extremely religious. I, I'm passing through and I, I see all these guys. I even see one with the inscription to the unknown God. You know, just in case you missed one, you made sure you had it covered. Well, that God that you don't know who he is, that's the God I'm here to tell you about. That, that's Paul's opening statement, isn't it? He says, therefore, the one you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And this is where it gets good. He says, God who made the world and everything in it. You see, there's our first point. God who made the world and everything in it. Now, notice this word made. It's the same word that will be translated down in verse 26 when he says he made from one blood. It has the idea of creating. Now, for mankind, we, we understand we're talking about when someone made something. They took some ingredients, they mixed them together, and, you know, out comes the cake. Or they take some parts and, and they build together a vehicle from various assembly. They do this work. They make something out of different. Now, Paul says the one who made the world, the one who fashioned the heavens and the earth, this is the one I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to you about the God who made everything. He made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. And so he introduces right away God's creativity and God's lordship, his kingship. Now that's going to be important later. So I want you to just file that idea away and, and stick with me on the creation aspect. He who made the world, everything in it, does not dwell on temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life. Breath and all things. Those are the two thoughts I want you to focus on. First, that he made the world. And second, that he gives to all life, breath, and all things. The first one is an overarching statement, isn't it? God made the world. Everything that you see is his. He fashioned it. He made it. That's Paul's first point. But then he, he drills down a little bit further. Because a lot of this world, a lot of the heavens is dead for all intents and purposes, isn't it? it there's no life in it. There's a lot of rock. It's a lot of dirt. There's no life in, in that, is there? There's a lot of water. There's no life inherently in water. Now, life lives within the water. Life lives within the dirt. But the, the dirt and the water and the air, they don't actually have any life in them whatsoever, do they? They're just, for all intents and purposes, dead. But without those things, we don't have life, right? So Paul says, God made the world 
everything in it. But then he gets more specific. Not only did he make the world everything in it, but he gives life and breath to all things. Anything that is living is living because of God. That's Paul's argument. He said, not only did he fashion it all, but he also gave life. Now, that's a, a pretty strong argument, isn't it? Because basically what Paul is saying is this. Life doesn't exist if God doesn't exist. Isn't that his argument? Isn't that, isn't that what he's saying? Saying life as you know it doesn't exist if this God I'm preaching to you doesn't exist. And big picture back out again. The world and everything that you see, that which is alive and that which is not. He made it, which means it doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist. Now, the Bible is consistent in this claim, isn't it? When we look at the text here in Acts 17, we see Paul make those two statements, but it's not anything new from those who are speaking from God. In fact, it begins back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, doesn't it? With the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, as we sometimes just phrase it, simply the seven days of creation. God made everything. Light, dark, sun, moon, stars, life of all kinds, and mankind is the crowning jewel. God fashioned it all in Genesis 1 or 2, and it is said to have been fashioned in seven days. Now, that even is consistent. I know there are some who, who claim that Genesis 1 through 11 are basically just poetic in form. They're not meant to inform us at all in regards to our understanding of how God did things. Well, we have a problem. Because if it's just poetic, Moses took it very literally. In fact, God himself took it very literally speaking to Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. You see, God is consistent. Not only does he come over in Genesis 1 and 2 and explain to us how he, cre how he created everything in seven days. But then when he's speaking to the children of Israel and giving the law of Moses, he reiterates this point that he created everything and that he did it in seven days. Beginning in verse 8, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates or... In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Lord says, I made everything in six days, and I rested the Sabbath. Consistency between Genesis 1 and 2, out to Exodus chapter 20. God is consistent in this claim that he fashioned everything in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Now, the New Testament is consistent with that. That God is responsible for absolutely everything that exists. And one of the tastes that we get with regards to a little more specificity is in John chapter 1. We read verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, right? The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with him. But then read verse 3 of John chapter 1. I'm going to give you a chance to get there. Don't worry. I want you to go to read <coughs> Look at verse 3. And I'll read it too. Make sure we get it right. All things were made through him. 
And without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him. Nothing was made that was made except through him. Everything was made through the word of God. Now, you can't miss it if you're familiar with Genesis 1. And God said, in the beginning was the word. Everything was made through him. The word, the expression of the will of God. Now, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And so the expression of the will of God as spoken actually is with us in life. Demonstrated in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. But everything that was made was made through him. That's just the same as Paul's argument in Acts 17. That's just what God's been telling Israel in Exodus 20. That's just as he revealed in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Everything came through him. Everything. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 gives us even more specificity in regards to Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> look at verse 16. It's speaking of Jesus here, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. That doesn't leave anything out, does it? It was created by and through him. Now, we can know this. Uh, we, we can know that this is the case. You know, Paul, when he was over there in Acts 17, quoting from him, talks about how he has given life breath to all things. And when you look at the design of the universe, we were talking earlier about my wife's angel boot cake. That was good stuff. Some of you have gotten to experience it. Hopefully all of you will at some point in your life. You need to. There's design to that, isn't there? There's intention to that, isn't there? You know when you see that certain things had to happen and someone had to act so as to bring that about. Have you ever tried to make a cake without knowing what you were doing? No. <laughs> How well is that going to work out for you? Not good. you got to have some design, right? There's got to be a way to go about doing it. There are some recipes that are quite simple. that They don't take a whole lot, but even those you have to get right. There are some recipes that are much more complicated that are much more in depth and sometimes you have steps you've got to follow point by point moment by moment item by item and if you skip something or you reverse the two the whole thing ain't going to be right it's screwed up something's going to be wrong there's design we recognize that we see it we appreciate it and so those who can do it well you know we go to them don't we and we say, hey, can you make me this? Can you do that for me? I, I would really appreciate that. I'll pay you if you do. We, we appreciate that because we understand the concept of, of design. When we look at the universe and just in one sense how it is fine-tuned, especially in relation to the Earth and its placement in our solar system. And even with our satellite, the moon there being at its distance and the way in which all that interacts upon our system as we know it. These things are rightly placed and rightly organized for life. 
Why do you think NASA spends so much money going out looking for other planets? You know, they're looking for life out there. Where they're looking, they're looking for places a lot like ours that can support life because we recognize something by default that the environment we have is ideal for supporting life. Now, maybe we're messing it up, but we need to do something about it, but, but it is ideal for supporting life. If we can understand that. That's what we talk about. We talk about the fact that the universe speaks to God and to his existence. Paul's arguing God has made everything because that is the most sensible thing to argue. It fits with everything else we know and recognize. Not only can we look at the design of the universe, but, but we can look at the idea of cause and effect. This universe in which we live, we haven't even started to understand the broad nature of it fully. We, we, we continually expand our understanding of, of it. We have to recalculate how many galaxies and this and that and how far across and things. We learn more and, and grow more. We, we start to realize just how big this place is. We look at someone like that and say, wow, how did that get here? There's a pretty universal thing in, in this universe in which we exist, and it's cause and effect. We understand that every day. We live by it every day, don't we? Now, we could get technical into it because cause and effect, as it relates to how we interact with physical objects and such, is really just physics, isn't it? And chemistry, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's wonderful to behold, but we're not going to get down there. I know some of you don't want to go there. Cause and effect. Just simply put, when you leave here today, you're going to be hungry, most likely. And depending on how long I preach, you'll be hungrier than, than others, perhaps. So, you know, it just depends on the sermon. But you're going to go, and you're going to intend to eat something, I imagine, right? Whether at home or at a restaurant, you're going to intend to go and eat somewhere. And you, you expect that when you eat that food, your stomach will be full, right? Cause and effect. You're looking for the fullness. You're looking for nutrition. Hopefully nutrition, right? <laughs> and you know the only way to, to bring about that effect is the proper cause. Have you ever tried to fill yourself up with water? Have you ever tried to do that? Those of you who have had certain medical exams, you've had to do that. You've had to go through that experience, right? Drink so much fluid, you feel like it. But water only lasts temporarily, doesn't it? You can drink all the water in the world and, and you're going to be hungry still. For a little bit, you'll feel oh, bloated. You know, you're all full of water and fluid. You're like, oh, I couldn't possibly swallow anything. But the hunger doesn't really go away. As soon as that feeling of nausea from drinking way too much water passes, your body reminds you, I'm hungry. But you didn't give it what it needed. You didn't need it to give it the sustenance, the, the nutrition that it needs, cause and effect. We, we understand that you're going to go out and you're going to go to get that food out by getting in your vehicle. And you expect that when you pull the door handle, what's going to happen? Your door's going to open, cause and effect. You expect that when you put the key in and turn it, it's going to crank, cause and effect. You expect that when you shift it in a drive and put your foot on the gas pedal, it's going to go, cause and effect. We live our lives constantly by this concept of cause and effect. You know, young guys, when you've got that controller in your hands and you're trying to outshoot the other guy in Fortnite, you expect him to push that button if you get it before he does it. You're going to shoot him first, right? Cause and effect. 
But if your internet connection's laggy, uh-oh, you're in some trouble, right? And that's cause and effect too. You're gonna die because you've got slow internet. That's the reality of life. So when we look at this universe, and we look at it being fine-tuned even down to our bodies and the way that they are orchestrated. You know, you just don't walk out the, off the street and start operating on somebody. <laughs> Body's too finely tuned. When we look at the design, when we look at the very principle of cause, when we look at those things that are evident to us in everyday life and how this universe functions, there is only one logical conclusion. There has to be a first cause that's greater than or equal to the effect. There has to be some design behind the design. There has to be God. It's the only logical conclusion that one can reach. And we have to twist ourselves around and around and around to try and get away from that. He made the world. God who made the world. That's Paul's first argument. But look at his second. Because he goes very quickly from the unknown God as the one who made everything to the unknown God as the one who made you. Now he says he gives to life. He gives life and breath to all things. So he kind of hints at it, right? But then he explicitly states it in verse 26. So if you're in Acts 17, look at verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grow for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Notice the text again. Well, I started with the text. He made, he starts with the same phrase, same idea, back up in verse 22. God made. He made it. Now what did he make? He made from one blood. <laughs> Every nation of men. He made from one blood every nation of men. Now, from one blood, again, there's consistency of biblical understanding, isn't there? That one blood all goes back to Genesis 1 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over everything. And then it says, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God made he, made he him. Male and female made he them. Now you transition to Genesis chapter 2. You get a little bit more detail, don't you? Into the exact nature of the creation of man. God zooms in on us a little bit. Have you ever watched a, a review of a vehicle? Maybe you're looking at buying one. Somebody does a video, you know, talks... Talks to a vehicle. What, what do they often do? They often go around at the outside of it. They, they kind of give you an overview of it, don't they? Kind of explain you some of the features and details of it. But but then some you know, some moments into it, at some point they're, they're going to kind of zoom into a specific part of the interior in particular, and they're going to start showing you how it's outfitted and situated. They're going to start talking about creature comforts. 
Because as good as a vehicle looks, if it doesn't feel comfortable at all sitting in it, you don't want it, do you? They're going to zoom in and give you some details on those parts. They'll give you that overview, but then they're going to get in on what's important. And in the creation story, as much as the heavens and the earth and the glory of this universe is amazing, they're not that important compared to us. And that's not an arrogant statement. That's simply saying that God created us specially. We're the only ones where, where the hands of God are explicitly described as being involved in the fashioning and the breathing into his nostrils, the breath of life. There is an intimacy in the creation ethic as it relates to you and me and how God created us. And so it's no wonder that the psalmist would declare in Psalm chapter 8 at verse 5. He says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. No wonder that God would say that. No wonder that the psalmist would, would declare it. And that's what the creation story tells us in Genesis 1. It's what it shows us. God shows us how he does everything. And then he zooms in on us because that's the important part. That's what's really going to matter because he's creating us for a very specific purpose. And we already read that purpose. You might have missed it, but we already read it. In Colossians 1 and verse 16, at the end of it, all things were created through him and, do you notice the last two words of that verse? For him. We're created for God. That echoes the statement of Ecclesiastes 12, doesn't it? When you read at the end there in Solomon says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. It says your existence is about serving God. Now, if you don't like that, that's okay. You don't have to like it. But that's what it is. And how you respond to that, how I respond to that is going to matter. But that is why we were created. We were created for God's glory, not for our own. Now, he crowned us with glory and honor, but that's only a testament of his glory because we're bearing his image. Unlike that beast that you got at home that you pet and wags the tail at you and begs for treats. I know they're cute and fluffy and wonderful. But they're not like you. They're not like you. God made all men from one blood. There's something to be said there as well, right? We all go back to Adam and Eve. Every single one of us. With, by the way, a little bit of a narrowing down with Noah's family. We're all relatives for Noah and his family. We're all relatives for Adam and Eve. Doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from, or how you speak. You're all from Adam and Eve. All men from one blood. Jesus himself in Mark 10 and verse 6 said, in the beginning he made them male and female. Jesus acknowledged exactly the truth of our creation. But then notice what Paul goes on to say because in verse 28 he says, in him we live and move and have being. God is the I am, we are the creator. He is the one who has life within himself and thus our life comes purely from him because he is the source of all life. That's Paul's argument. In him we live and move and have our being. All life comes through God. 
Without him, there is no life. But then in verse 29, he describes ourselves, describes us as being the offspring of God. And notice how he argues, if we're the offspring of God, then why would we think God is stone or metal? What sense does that make? Is stone or metal anything like you? You might put it on as a wedding band. Ladies, you might get you a pretty necklace. You might, you know, you might have a bracelet. You know, your smartphones are made out of quite a few different metals and precious minerals. But uh, those things don't have any life in them, do they? But you do. You're different. You're, you're unique. And Paul says, it makes no sense to think that a rock is God when you can do with the rock as you will. It makes no sense. It's illogical. Remember, he's dealing with people who are professional reasoners. He's reasoning with them. Sense doesn't make any sense. God has to be something more than us if we're created by him. God has to be greater than us. Now that helps us to understand some things about ourselves. One of the arguments for God's existence as it relates to the creation of man is is sometimes called the moral argument. We have a tendency to make moral judgments as a people, don't we? In fact, I imagine last night when you, yesterday afternoon, evening, when you heard about the shooting in El Paso, you made a moral judgment. Did you? Made a moral judgment. In fact, lots of folks on TV who aren't Bible-believing Christians were making moral judgments. It's an act of violence. It's an act of evil. We've got to condemn these things and it seems to indicate that perhaps this individual is a white supremacist. I haven't read all the details, but that seems to be the indication. We come out in condemnation against it, saying, saying absolutely cannot think that way, cannot be that way. This is horrid and atrocious. And it is what it is, domestic terrorism. Then the, the shooting in Dayton overnight, you woke up and saw that on the, morning, on the news this morning. You probably thought the same thing. Again, it's being condemned. It's an act of violence. It's, it's not sensible. We're making a moral judgment, aren't we? About that action. But we just don't make moral judgments about that. We, we make moral judgments in society and culture all the time. How much of our society and culture do you, do you believe thinks it is right for the Taliban, Taliban to keep young girls from going to school? Pretty much condemned outright, isn't it? I mean, by and large, by our society. Folks who believe in God and don't, don't care for God also say, that is wrong. It's not right. We can't have that. Moral judgment is made regarding the killing of an animal for no reason. Somebody just gets mad, kicks their dog, and kills. That's wrong. We've got laws against that, right? We're making a moral judgment. Our society makes moral judgments about the abortion of babies. By law, it's not against it. It's a moral judgment. Many would stand up and say, all the way up to birth, nothing wrong with it. It's a moral judgment. While there are many more who don't, even, don't believe in God, 
who would stand and make a moral judgment and say, it's wrong, that's life. And we as God's people certainly believe it's life from conception. From conception of the grave, life ought to be valued. Moral judgment. What makes us as a society, both religious or irreligious, what makes us as people give moral judgments? Because if we are not created in the image of God, if morality is just a figment of imagination, I have no right to make any moral judgment against anyone else for anything. And yet we argue there ought to be moral judgments. That, that there ought to be good and evil. And we, we can make arguments about, oh, well, it developed out of evolution. Oh, really? Nature has morality? Uh, nature has morality. Have you watched any of the National Geographic channel? You watching those nature shows growing up? Were you a kid in the same schools I was in watching some of those videos in science class? Woo! There's no morality in nature. The strong eat the weak, and that's what it is. That zebra has her little baby foal right there, and it's running around all cute, and here comes a lion and gobbles it up. It's gone. Takes it down. You say, man, why are you going to talk about that on Sunday morning? Come on, man. I know. It's uncomfortable to us. Why? Because we're moral creatures. And when we see that lion thinking that little baby zebra, we think about someone harming our own child. And we're making a moral judgment. The fact that man is moral is one of the greatest testimonies to the fact that there has to be a righteous and holy God who made us. And no matter how much we try to refuse and deny that God is God, we can't deny it because it is in us. I can pretend it isn't. I can act like it isn't. I can declare it isn't. But it doesn't change the reality of what is. You see, I'm made in the image of God. That's Paul's argument. We can see in ourselves the fact that there's no other explanation. But someone who is greater than us, someone who is moral, someone who has justice instilled in them as who they are, just and righteous and holy, because those features are in us. And they're not anywhere else in nature. They are in us. And in the beginning, man, I'm created. God made the world, the heavens, and all that you see. He consistently declares himself the maker of it. The Bible is consistent declaring it being made in six days with rest in the seventh and the design of the universe and the very principle of cause and effect as we know it and as we witness it every single day testifies to that fact. But God didn't just make the world and all that is in it. He made us. And he made us uniquely in his image. And he made all of us from one blood, Adam and Eve, in the beginning. And we are bearing his image. That's why we're immortal people. That's why we declare right and wrong, evil and good, wicked and right. Because we are made in the image of one who is holy. And judges between that which is right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness. To take an idea from our previous series of sermons. So what does man need to do? Well, Paul doesn't mince words. If God made the heavens and the earth, and if God made you, then the time of the ignorance God will death, but now commands you to repent. Now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that one whom he has ordained and that he has raised him from the dead. Jesus the Christ is raised and he's coming again in judgment. 
And if God has made the world and God has made us, then you are bound to him whether you want to be or not. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he will be your judge. And so instead of denying God, denying his creation of you and me, let's embrace the one who created us. Let's take note of the way in which this is made and how it testifies to him. And let us respond to him in repentance and obedience. Because one day we will all stand before him in judgment, whether we're ready or not. And so remember, we've heard the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. If he has made everything and he has made us, then the great responsibility of all of mankind is to obey him. Because he is the Lord. In fact, didn't Paul say exactly that to those there in Athens? He's Lord of heaven and earth. So my friend, today, recognize you're not a monkey's uncle or a chimp's cousin. You're not the product of some billions of years of suffering and accidents. Millions or how many ever they're saying today. You're the very special, uniquely created image bearer of God. Which means you need to respond to God. You need to recognize him as such and obey him as such. And for those of us living in this age, we have seen the revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. And his son has called us to believe and be baptized in order to be saved, Mark 16, 16. To repent and be averse for the remission of our sins, Acts 2, at verse 38. Because judgment is coming. What will your choice be? Will we accept our creator God and love him and serve him? Or will we live in rebellion until he judges us accordingly? It's your choice. And to my brothers and sisters, we can't forget that we are his image bearers. And how much more so in Christ, which we'll talk about next week. And so our lives aren't bearing the image of our creator and our savior. We've got to make some changes. And we know what we ought to do, don't we? The invitation is offered. If you need to respond, we encourage you to do so. Come to God as we stand and sing to encourage you. We hope that the sermon challenged you and encouraged you in your walk with God. Now that you have listened, we invite you to join us for Bible class on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. or for worship at 10.30 a.m. Further service times can be found on our website. If you would like to study the Bible further, have questions, or just want to send in a prayer request, please call us at 757-848-1120, email us at info, I-N-F-O, at peninsulacofc.org, or fill out the contact form on our website at peninsulacofc.org. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe and rate us in iTunes or on your favorite podcast player to keep up with future sermons. May God bless you.